Conversations with inspiring women about their stories and the neon colours that they have to share. This is the Neon Woman Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Neon Woman Podcast. It's time for a new episode, and this week, my guest is Susan Landers. Susan joins me to discuss her origin story, her journey within the world, and how that led her to become a full-time NICU doctor. We definitely bonded over this aspect of the conversation because I was born severely premature, so it was really interesting to get her perspective on that environment for mothers and babies. We also discuss the challenges that she faced as a full-time doctor and a mother of three what it means to be a neon woman, and so much more. I really loved my conversation with Susan, and I hope you all enjoy it too. Just a trigger warning, this episode does contain some conversation about eating disorders. Susan, welcome to the Neon Woman podcast. I'm so excited to chat to you today. Oh, thank you, Chloe. I've been looking forward to our conversation. I like the whole idea about A Neon Woman Network. Yes. Well, my first question, which is the same for everyone, is we're all known in the world for what we do, but I would like to know who is Susan in this world aside from what you do? Oh, wow. That's a very tricky question because being a typical baby boomer, I always considered myself to be a physician dedicated to my patient, um, very responsible, keeping up with cutting edge technologies and reading and uh, continuing education. But as a person, I am a mother of three, a grandmother of two, a handbell ringer, (laughs) in a church choir and um, a fanatic about exercise. Mm -hmm. I, I enjoy a small number of very good friends. I do not like to cook. I married a man who cooks really well. And it's funny, my daughter, my older daughter also married a chef and, um, I'm doing something in my life right now, which is really different from what I've done before. I practiced medicine for 35 years. I raised my children. I've been married for 39 years. And what I'm doing now is practicing generativity. That is when you, usually for someone who's older like me, when you decide to share your knowledge and wisdom with other people. And I've decided to support working mothers. And so I developed some social media platforms and wrote a blog to help other working mothers. I wrote a book after I retired. So I guess I'm also an author although I never thought about myself as an author until the last few years. So I'm a very complicated person. Aren't we all? (laughs) 
Yes, yes, we are. Yes. Let's start a little bit with your origin story, because I'm a big believer that how we were raised shapes the paths you choose to go down, but also the ones you choose to not go down to. Right, right. I agree with you. I was raised by two of the, you know, the old timer, greatest generation, World War II vet father and a mom who lived through the Depression. And they were very strict. My father was um, very authoritative. There was a lot of yelling in my household and his, his rules were the rules. I rebelled against that and um, left for college and pretty much decided I didn't want to go back. I discovered I loved biology and chemistry. And so I was encouraged by a medical record librarian who said, you're smart, you can do anything. I went, oh, okay. I, I applied to med school and I got in. When I started med school in a class of 180 people, there were only 16 women. Wow. So when I started, it was not typical for women to go into medicine. Now it's 50%. Most medical school classes are half and half. I wanted to get away from home. I wanted to get out on my own and going to medical school. And then this, uh, I grew up in South Carolina, a very provincial place to live and grow up. And I was way more progressive than that. So when it was time to do my residency training, I left the South and went to Dallas, Texas. And I I was really making that choice to get away from the deep South and get away from my family. And as I learned how to be a physician, a pediatrician, and then a neonatologist, I felt free. I felt like I had always been sort of um, controlled by my parents, although they never told me what to do. They always just told me how I should be, and I wanted to be my own person. Um, and medicine was a great outlet for that. I was a, a perfectionist, and medicine is a great um, field for people who want to do things perfectly. Um, so I ran away from my family of origin, and it took me a long time to figure out how to go back. When I had children, I wanted them to meet their grandparents. And when my sister was sick with cancer, I would go back and take care of her um, until she died of cancer about 10 years ago. And I'm a lot closer with my two brothers now, having found my own way. But uh, everybody in my family was conservative, and I was very liberal, very progressive. And I don't know if it, it was the exposure to patients over the years, if it was my experience taking care of indigent people in large cities, county hospitals, or it was just the way I was wired. But I was really different from them politically. And so it took me a long time to figure out how to embrace my family of origin and, you know, kind of make peace with them. I mean, wow, where do we even, where do we even begin with that? This podcast is all about the neon colours that women have to share. But sometimes our colours get dimmed. And 
I would love to know if you have a story to share where your neon colours were dimmed and what your journey was to brighten them again. Hmm, interesting. Well, I've been lucky as a redhead my whole life. That gives you a little bit of license to sort of be different. You know, initially as a child, you don't like being a redhead because you're different and people tease you. But later you learn, oh, my God, I've got this wonderful stuff. And it's always a conversation starter. And you learn how to use it and you learn that it's an advantage. Um, And so I was always sort of out there and extroverted and sure of myself. And I went through my training very um, easily, eagerly and easily. And I was a skilled physician, neonatologist. I met my husband and he was very different from me. He was very laid back, kind of laissez-faire. And there were two experiences in our married life that changed me, that dimmed my neon light. The first one was when I was pregnant with my first baby. I had a very complicated pregnancy. I went into premature labor at 25 weeks gestation. And I had to be in the hospital for three weeks. And I had to be at home on bed rest. And I felt horrible. I felt hopeless. I felt helpless. I felt not myself. I was resentful that teenage mothers could have a baby even without prenatal care and here I was this highly educated person taking care of sick babies for a living who couldn't even have a healthy baby so that was the time in my life when I was really corralled in and it was difficult to get through that fortunately we had our son five weeks early and he was a big preemie and he was healthy and I loved being a mother And then I discovered that I could be a mother and a doctor, but it was difficult. But I I got my colors back because I could do both. I was pretty good at being a mom and I was pretty good at being a doc and learning how to juggle all of that was um, fun. And I continued to be extroverted. Uh, We had more children. We had two more children. We had been married about eight years. And my husband got a great job offer to leave Houston and go to a small town in the South for a great position in a medical school. And my job would not be very good. It would just be kind of a regular neonatologist. And we went there and I found a new school for the kids. We found a new house. I hired a new nanny. I left all my friends behind in Houston. That was the place where I had done my training, been married, had children. And I was like pitiful. I got depressed. I developed postpartum depression. I think my third child was about a year old. But I was miserable. I just hated my job. I hated where we lived. My husband was so happy. And I was so miserable. And my colors dimmed in the sense that I was dark and grouchy and resentful. And it was a terrible time in my life. Thank God, a friend of mine recommended a good psychiatrist. And I spent about two years working with that psychiatrist to sort through 
the priorities of my life. So at this time, I would have been in my early 40s. And you know, when you're in your early 40s, you sort of figure out who you are and what you're up to career-wise, parent-wise, partnership, relationship. I think most women do. Uh, some in their late 30s, almost all of us in our 40s. And so I really had to struggle to decide where I wanted to spend my time and put my effort. And that process allowed me to show my colors again. I felt really hemmed in until I went through that process and decided what my priorities were, what I was good at, what my strengths were, what my weaknesses were. And then I was able to really make sense of my life. It turns out I convinced my husband that we needed to move to another city where we could both have jobs we liked, which we did. <laughs> I have to give him a lot of credit because he was willing to leave a really good job uh, where he was a big fish in a small pond. And we moved to Austin, Texas, and both of us discovered you know, kind of new ways to fit into private practice and our kids were in public school and we made lots of friends. In fact, I started working with some people I had trained with in Houston. And so we've been here for 26 years and both had great jobs, had fun raising our kids. Um, and I felt like I've always had my colors since then. I've always been expressive and, um, thoughtful. And if I want to do something, I just go learn how to do it. So um, there were only those two times in my life when my colors were dimmed by my life experience. Yeah. <clears throat> They're both incredible stories. And <laughs> I think you had to go on a journey of self-discovery to realize yeah. that you needed to change things. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that is so hard for young women today. It was hard for all of us in different phases of our lives. Self-discovery, I think, is really an ongoing process. It, it, mine was really concentrated in my early 40s, but I'm still doing it now, and I'm 70 years old. Mm. You know, what am I good at? What, what am I going to contribute to younger working mothers? How am I going to be supportive? What can I do to help folks not make some of the same mistakes I made? So we do go through a journey of self-discovery, as you say, at many different points in our lives. Absolutely. Well, you're a retired neonatologist. Yes. What made you choose that career out of all the possible medical fields? Well, at first, good question. At first, I wanted to do surgery. And um, I was dating a guy in med school who was going to be a urologist, and I wanted to do pediatric surgery. And he said, I don't really want to marry a, a woman surgeon. And I went, what? <laughs> and so I kind of deviated and detoured from surgery to pediatrics, thinking that I would come back around to pediatric surgery. And then I fell in love with neonatology. Um, I love working with moms and babies. Neonatology is a lot of critical care. 
intensive care, sick babies, premature infants. But it's also real tender because the moms are there with us in the hospital. And it's never a happy experience when you have a sick baby. And I just love being there with moms, high-risk moms. And maybe the experience that I had with my first baby taught me how to really be empathetic. But I just felt like I knew how helpless they felt. And I wanted to be able not only to take care of their child, but also um, support them. And so that was the most rewarding part of my job. And I grew and I loved neonatology and I don't regret not going into surgery. We do a lot of procedures in neonatology. It's a lot like surgery. Um, the hours are just as bad. But it was that intimacy that I um, was able to uh, enjoy with the parents of my patients. I mean, some of my little babies are in the hospital for four, five, six months. And um, I enjoyed that. That was very rewarding. I felt like part of their family sometimes. I have my own story of that. So I was born three and a half months premature. Wow. Um, So I have my own experience of the NICU, even though I obviously remember none of it. Right. What, What kind of experiences did you have as someone who actually worked in the NICU all of the time? Well, the first, and hardest is the surprise that parents are confronted with when they have a sick baby or when they unexpectedly have an extreme premature baby like you were born. And you have to sort of peel them off the ceiling because it's shock, it's trauma, it's not normal. And, you know, we all think about having a perfectly normal full-term baby. And so you have to learn how to deal with people who who are traumatized and in shock. And you have to say things over and over again while you are also taking care of a very sick patient. Now, taking care of a very sick patient sometimes draws you away, but the parents see that you are dedicated to their baby and they grow to trust you. Um, It's a lot of procedures. You're putting babies on ventilators. You're inserting catheters, lines, and tubes into babies. You're talking to parents about surgical procedures. You are talking to moms about breastfeeding. That's my, one of my favorite things in the nursery. I was a champion for breastfeeding. Now we know that breastfed premature infants, premature infants who are fed their mother's milk have better neurologic and neurodevelopmental outcomes than those who were fed formula. Mm. And we always suspected that, but it's just in the last five years that those studies have proved that. So I spent a lot of my time encouraging women who could not breastfeed because their baby was sick to pump their breast milk, to save it, to store it. And then we would feed the babies the breast milk and then mom would learn to nurse later on. If I don't know if you've ever breastfed a baby, but if many of your listeners will understand that when you're pumping your breast milk, that's like six or eight times a day. You know, you're storing it, you're putting it in containers, you're either refrigerating it or freezing it. It is a big deal and it is not at all like breastfeeding a baby. It is painful sometimes. 
it is sad because you're not nursing your baby. And so these moms go through a lot to get that liquid gold into their children while they're in the NICU. I enjoyed that quite a bit. I enjoyed the procedures a lot. I, um, I liked working with obstetricians. They're different from neonatologists. They really focus on the mom and we focus more on the baby in the context of a family. Um, I mean, all pediatricians do focus on a child in the context of the family. Um, but I enjoyed working with other physicians, surgeons, other consultants. I had an opportunity when I was in my 50s. So established career, established practice, routine NICU <clears throat> practice. And I was getting a little, okay, this is sort of ordinary. And I know I like this, but I want to do something different. I was... Uh, selected to be a medical director of a donor human milk bank. And I uh, learned about donor human milk banking. And I did some studies and I traveled to California to learn about breastfeeding and learn about human milk banking. And I joined a group at the American Academy of Pediatrics that was studying donor breast milk. And so that was kind of a side area of professional development that I was able to do. It was not required of me for my job, but it was something I wanted to do. And I think maybe that's a sign that you really are doing okay in your life, your career, your profession. If you see something you're interested in and you want to kind of take a little detour and get some additional training, and I'm so glad that I did that because I learned about something that turned out to be really huge for the care of babies. And for any of your listeners that have pumped their milk for a child or used donor breast milk for a child, they'll understand how valuable that service is. Absolutely. What an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was wonderful. Well, you were working full-time and you were working full-time as a mother. What was that like to balance everything and what were the challenges that you faced? Well, I don't think it's a real balance. I think it's more juggling because you, you can't be two places at once. If you're at work, you're not with your children. Someone else is taking care of them. And it took me a long time to get used to that notion of not being able to do everything probably seven or eight years. I think all three of my children were born, seven, four, and newborn, before I really felt like I was doing a good enough job. You know, children get sick, things happen at school, um, something goes wrong, your child bites, your child has dyslexia, your child has gets bullied. I mean, so many things happen as your children grow up that it tears you from your work and it's not typical so you don't just check out with the nanny and go to work you know you take your concerns about your children to work with you mm-hmm. and any of the working moms listening know that we say we balance work and motherhood but it really gets kind of lopsided and sometimes we're worried about our kids at work 
and it affects how we work. Other times we bring the stress from work home to our family and it affects how we mother. And so there's no true balance in my mind. It's more of a juggle. Which things are you going to take care of? And the other things are sort of up in the air or on the back burner. Um, there was a time when my older daughter was in high school. She was 16 years old. And she developed an eating disorder. This was before social media. So she had seen pictures of skinny models on magazines and she and her friends talked about dieting and she stopped eating and within about she had been at camp and they were talking about their fat you know they were all like 90 pounds and <clears throat> she came home from camp and said I need to go on a diet I went no you're thin what are you talking about you don't need to go on a diet and I was kind of busy and we noticed that she wasn't eating but we it, it didn't really sink in. I mean, you can kind of fake eating. I don't know what you know about eating disorders, but teenagers mm. can kind of push food around on their plate or say, I've got to go to work or run up to their room or just, you know, not be part of the dinner table. So this went on for a couple of months until her best friend's mother said, she's not eating at school. She's not eating over here. And if you think she's not eating, then something's wrong. So I cut back my hours. I went to part-time for a three-year period so that I could get her the help that she needed and the therapy and the nutritionist and take her to appointments myself because I felt part of what was going on with my daughter was excessively high expectations from me. Mm. Um I mean, mothers have a lot to do with how daughters feel about themselves and about their bodies. Um, and so I deliberately cut back my hours to spend more time with her. And I figured out that I felt better, even though I was really worried about my daughter. And she recovered quickly within six months. But I, I realized that I was spending too much time at work and not enough time at home with my children, who were then two teenagers and a middle schooler. So cutting back my hours turned out to be a good thing for me, and it allowed me to be a far better mother and then less intensive as a physician. Mm -hmm. So you ask about balancing work and motherhood. It's really kind of work in progress. You know, it depends on how old you are. It depends on how old your children are. It depends on your job. It depends on your your profession, your career, and how many hours you want to work. I mean, there were times when I worked 50 or 60 hours a week, and that was probably crazy uh, for my family. But when my daughter was sick, I cut my hours back to about 30, mm -hmm. and it was noticeably less stress. Mm, yeah I like I like what you say about it being a juggling act not a balance yes yeah it it is it's it's not like it's more like being on a seesaw you know somebody's up somebody's down you know it's just it it's never balanced 
even though we say we balance it, we don't. We just kind of run from one thing to the other and call it balancing. And uh, I think any working mother uh, kind of struggles with it to begin with. And then they sort of get their groove and depending on their schedule and their childcare arrangements, they learn how to kind of make it work. Mm, yeah. Well, you published a book called So Many Babies. Can you talk about the book and the writing process? Oh, thank you. Yes. I When I retired, I had a lot of time on my hands. You can tell I'm always sort of a driven person. And I uh, was playing piano and doing calligraphy and gardening. And, and that just didn't seem like quite enough. And so I contacted um, the parents of some of my special patients, kids that, you know, a set of triplets, a set of twins, some singletons, some special babies that I had gotten to know their family over five or six months in the hospital. Um, I contacted the parents and asked them permission to tell their story. I wanted to tell the story of what it was like to be in a NICU, to work in a NICU, uh, my life with the nurses, with the families, with the sick babies, the whole shebang, the critically ill, the, everything. And all the parents said, yes. They all said, sure, you can tell our story. And so I started writing those stories. And then <clears throat> my girl, excuse me, my girlfriend said, why don't you write the stories of your own life, your own motherhood life? And I went, oh, okay. So I wove my professional stories and my motherhood stories together so that the reader could get this notion of how work and motherhood are woven together. They're not separate and they're not balanced by any means because sometimes work causes more stress and vice versa. And so the book turned out to be a memoir, but I wrote it in a way I was very honest, very vulnerable. I wanted it to help other working mothers. My whole career, I have heard women say, nobody else is working as hard as me. Nobody else is having all the trouble I'm having. Nobody else has a child they're so worried about. Nobody else, it's all me. And I'm going, no, it's not. We are all, we all struggle. We all try to balance our work and our children and our family and our husband or partner. You are not alone. And I wrote my book in a way that other women, I hope, would feel reassured about that process, that whole notion of doing everything, because you can't do everything at once. You can pick and choose the things you want to do, but you do have to have priorities. Um, Self-care is something. And I wrote about that in the book, how I kind of learned to strike out and go running when I was in my 30s and say to my husband, you've got the kids, I'll be gone for an hour. Or in my 40s, how I said, I was going to take off one or two days a week to go exercise. I, I had to learn how to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. I don't think... I don't think my mother taught me how to do that. Nobody, nobody taught me how to do that. Mm. I had to figure out that caring for myself was the way to 
stay productive yeah. and compassionate and um, a better mother. And maybe, maybe my daughter developed an eating disorder because I was working too much and I was too stressed and I wasn't paying enough attention. And I, I don't want to say it's my fault, but I'm sure my work contributed to it. And so um, I wanted all my motherhood stories, all the struggles, all the challenges, even the triumphs, to be very realistic and to reassure other women that uh, they were not alone and that they could do it too. Mm. And I do believe that you can't take care of anyone else until you take care of yourself first. Right. Something I've had to learn. Yes, we all do. It's it's the, one of the hardest lessons. Yeah. Leaving your sick child when you have to go to work and taking care of yourself. Those are two of the hardest lessons. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I have one more question before we get to the bonus questions. Okay. What's the most surprising thing you've learned about yourself through all the different seasons of your life? Hmm. I have too many opinions and I think that when I was younger and practicing, it served me really well um, and I could reassure parents because I knew what was the best thing to do to make their baby feel better. But sometimes my partners didn't like it. I, um, I was a self-starter. I was... Uh, sometimes thought that I knew best and that did not serve me well with my peers. Um, my husband tolerated it fine. He He's never been intimidated by me or my knowledge or my work or anything, but, but some of my partners were. And I think that was the thing that did not serve me well, that as I got older, I learned how to be present and not comment. <laughs> and, if, and if you're a talkative person like me, that's that's a hard thing to learn. It's uh, you know, I mean, you have to shut up and listen. And um, I don't I don't know where that came from. You asked me about my family. I think it came from my trying to prove myself to my father, who's always so hard on me. I think I learned as a little girl to stand up for myself, whether it was the red hair or my angry father. You know, I, I got called red strings and I learned how to fight. I was a tomboy. And and so I think being outspoken was the way I protected myself and the way I reassured myself of my self-worth. And you're right, our upbringing does contribute to our personality and our character. And I think it's important for people, especially your age, to be aware of that and mm -hmm. think about that as they examine their life and their work and their family. Because, um, and, and our friends will always tell us, our friends always know what our strengths and what our weaknesses are. They see us in action, especially coworkers. Um, and so I think it's a good thing to think about those issues 
and bounce some of those struggles off of a good friend or a therapist, um, either one. Yeah, absolutely. Do you love poetry? Have you ever just wanted a little bit of inspiration to start your day? A Poem a Day by Lomacket is that magical book of inspiration you've been looking for. One poem a day for every day of the year. Available now on Amazon. Go and get your copy today. For more information, go to lomacket.com or neonwoman.com. Well, let's get into the bonus questions, which I ask okay. everyone. I have a playlist on Spotify for the podcast, and every guest chooses a song. So my question to you is, what's the one song you play to brighten your neon colours? Um, Carol King's I Feel the Earth Move Under My Feet. Great choice. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> Reminds me of college and dancing in my dorm room with my college roommate. Amazing. I'll add that to the playlist. What about love is wild to you? Oh, wow. Um, physical intimacy, true physical intimacy. It requires a little bit of aggressiveness and a little bit of passiveness. And it's kind of a dance that we do. And I think that's kind of wild. Um, I don't know that I've ever learned how to do it properly, but I'm lucky that I have a husband who has a great sense of humor. <laughs> what about your fashion sense is original? Oh, wow. I wear things that are comfortable. I used to wear things that were in big, bold print. And then I started wearing scrubs every day at work. So I didn't have so many career clothes. But I've always worn things that were comfortable, things with pockets, things with flowing skirts, sort of a free-spirited sort of uh, fashion sense, I think. Mm. Does that make sense? I don't, yeah. think I don't think it's a type of fashion. It's just like what I have on, and you know, bright yeah. colors. and Yeah, it's original <laughs> to you, which makes it original. There you go. What do you do to keep your mindset magnificent? Oh, wow. I journal. I exercise like a banshee. I, mm -hmm. I work out five or six days a week. I, I love Pilates. Same. I do bar. I uh, walk the dog. I do strength training with a trainer one day a week. I just discovered a long time ago that if I didn't move my body, my mood would not be okay. I exercise more for my mood than I do for my fitness. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's what I'm most dedicated to. Mm -hmm. But I love calligraphy. I learned calligraphy when my daughter got married so I could address the wedding invitations. It's the perfect hobby if you're a perfectionist. It's just wonderful. I try to play the piano, but I'm not very good at it, so I get frustrated. But um, that's enough. Those are the yeah. things that I do the most. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all good things. <laughs> yeah, thanks. 
Where is the most adventurous place you've traveled to? Oh my God. I just got back from Iceland. Wow. I loved it. My college roommate invited me to go with her because her husband got sick and she had planned this whole trip. She had um, arranged the Airbnb and all the tours. We went to see the geysers and the volcano and the, uh, waterfalls and the Blue Lagoon and ate seafood and met such nice people. And that is the most fascinating island. It is just amazing. It's like a natural wonder of the world. And it's a tiny little country. Reykjavik is only 380,000 people. Yeah. Um, and they're so proud of their history, you know, from being from Vikings. And it was just an adventure, you know, it was cold. So it was hard. here I am in Texas and we're, we're only used to the heat. So it was adventurous on so many levels, all the beautiful natural wonders, all the cold, all the geothermal energy. It was just magnificent. It, okay. it should be on everybody's bucket list. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to go. What is necessary to you to have a healthy lifestyle? And I put the word healthy in quotes because I think the word can mean different things. Yes. Um, well, exercise, a good diet. I stopped drinking alcohol a few years back. As I got older, drinking wine would kind of make me foggy and I didn't sleep as well. And so I decided um, that I needed to let it go. Um, I worry quite a bit about um, younger professionals coming home and dealing with their stress by drinking. Um, that's what I did. And a lot of people do that. And whether you have a beer or a glass of wine, but sometimes it can kind of sneak up on you and turn out to be a bad thing. And I finally got to the point where I didn't like having indigestion. I didn't like poor sleep. And so I just quit drinking. So that was the thing that made me feel way more healthy mm, yeah I can definitely relate to using alcohol to de-stress and it yeah it can mm -hmm. catch up on you it does it's not a healthy way to de-stress it really oh. just numbs us out instead of feeling the feelings but and we all do it and it's so common I just want people to think about how much they drink and why they drink Mm -hmm. especially if they're doing it to calm their nerves for stress. It, that's what happened to me. And it took me a long time to figure that out. So it's not an easy thing to change. Our society is really wound around alcohol. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which woman or women are inspirational to you, famous or non-famous? Uh, oh, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I really like Hillary Clinton. I was so disappointed she didn't get elected president. I know. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, we were so close. And Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt was a woman, you know, she spoke her mind and was outspoken. And she and her husband had a good understanding that she was going to go do what she wanted. Kind of like Hillary and Ruth. But those three are my most inspirational characters. Amazing. Yeah, they're all inspirational. 
This has been such a wonderful conversation. I have one last question for you. Sure. What does being a neon woman mean to you? Oh, being free to express yourself, whether it's creativity or work or writing or color or gardening or whatever. It, being a, it to me it means freedom to be who you are, even if you talk too much, <laughs> even if you're too opinionated. It's freedom to be yourself and love yourself. Um, which can take a while for some people. It took a while for me. Um, so that's what I think it means. Mm, I love that so much. Susan, thank you for this conversation. Where can people buy your book? Where can they connect with you on social media? Uh, my website is susanlandersmd.com. If you type that in with a forward slash burnout, you will go to a checklist that I have developed for burnout and working moms. I have resources on that page. I have a blog. I have a newsletter. Uh, you can buy my book on my website. Actually, there are links to take you to an online bookstores. So start at my website, SusanLandersMD.com forward slash burnout and take a checklist and see how you're doing. <laughs> I definitely will do that. Oh, good. Thanks. Thank you so much, Susan. This has been wonderful to chat with you. Oh, bless your heart. I appreciate your interest and your attentiveness. It's been great. And keep up your good work with the podcast. Thank you. I will. It's I will. very important. What you're doing is so important. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you for listening to the Neon Woman podcast a Neon Network production. Follow Neon Woman on Instagram and Facebook or check out neonwoman.com for all the latest episodes and so much more. Thanks for listening.